Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 1st, 2019, and my guest is software engineer, designer, and researcher Andy Matushik. He has worked with Apple and helped build early versions of iOS and spent five years at Khan Academy working on how to improve learning in online platforms. Our topic for today is an essay, fascinating essay of his called Why Books Don't Work. Andy, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for that very generous introduction. What's wrong with books? I like them. I, you know, this, this essay is a little bit of an anti-book screed. Yeah. And I'm quite actually sympathetic to it. But on, at first glance, the idea that books don't work is deeply disturbing. So make the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps I need to roll back on the title a little bit, perhaps a little bit of clickbait there. So let me begin by saying why I love books. Now, first off, books are the, the author of our cultural history, and certainly oral history has a, a great role to play as well. But insofar as we're able to build on previous generations' knowledge reliably and construct cultures that we're proud of and indeed contribute to future cultures, much of that is occurring through books. So great. Separately, there's also the wonders of fiction. We're also able to live in other people's worlds, experience what could be absolutely fantastic. So perhaps a better title for this essay would have been something like, uh, Why Books Don't Reliably Convey Detailed Information. And and in particular, nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although, we learn much from, I'd say, from fiction, mm-hmm. but the type of learning that we expect to do from nonfiction is is different. Sure. Now, sometimes we read nonfiction for entertainment purposes, but sometimes we read nonfiction because we genuinely want to learn about the topic and we really want to understand. And we, we want to get smarter. And I, I think one of the challenges of your essay, which is a challenge of this whole area, is what do we really mean by learn, or what do we mm-hmm. mean by remember, or what do we mean by grasp? Uh, but at the heart of the challenge that you identify with books is uh, something, uh, a, a framework I had not heard before called transmissionism. Explain what that is. Sure. It's, it's a bit of a straw man, really, in that no one actually advocates for it. But essentially, transmissionism is, is the false idea that you can come to know a thing uh, by having that knowledge directly transmitted into you as if you're a slate that I, as the teacher, can write upon. And so, um, in some sense, books are kind of imagining, or an author is kind of imagining, that they can write an explanation of a thing, and that a reader can read that explanation, and then they'll come to know it. Now, sophisticated readers don't stop there. They know they have to do more, but it's hard to do it. And actually, the medium itself doesn't do much to convey what else must be done in order to learn. And you make a parallel, which I find... um quite interesting about lectures because uh, I've given quite a few lectures in my life and I've attended mercifully a smaller number, I think. Um, And I'm struck by many of them as being of no value, obvious value whatsoever. It doesn't mean that there isn't value because there are subtle things that that can be gained from listening to someone speak. But as you point out, often a very short period of time after that lecture has passed or after you've read the book, you don't remember a single thing. It's not that you didn't get everything the author or lecture intended. You get literally nothing that at least comes to your conscious mind. Yeah, especially months later. <clears throat> Lectures are maybe an easier thing to attack. I think we kind of have an intuition that, oh, you attend the lecture, and you might say something like, oh, that was interesting, or that was helpful, and then uh, did it actually help you understand the material? Well, maybe if after the lecture you did a whole bunch of stuff. You did some problem sets, you did some projects, but if you just listen to the lecture, uh, you probably don't walk away with all that much, except perhaps excitement, emotion, things like that. And that's because lectures, like books as I was describing before, are sort of founded on this transmissionism notion. The notion is that I, as the teacher, can kind of get up there and say a bunch of words, and then you'll know stuff. But it seems to me, to be fair to lectures and to give them their due, and, Please. and I think also somewhat to books, and we'll... We won't spend too long on this part saying nice things about them, but it, it seems to me that, that much of what we expect to get from them is exactly what we get. 
Uh, we're not really expecting to learn a massive amount. We're not expecting to learn how to master a subject. We want to be exposed to the working of a mind, uh, someone's mind that, that appeals to us or that we think will inspire us. Um, you know, I think about uh, a weekly sermon as an example where you're not really expected to learn anything. It's supposed to touch your heart, perhaps change your behavior, rarely does, I suspect. Uh, but perhaps the accumulation of that contact and that mode has an impact on you. And similarly, hearing a, a lecture of a great scientist or a great thinker uh, maybe inspires you to uh, take your life more seriously, say, not to be fully aware of, say, how the genetic process works or quantum computing or anything like that. Absolutely. I, I agree completely. And, and, and perhaps to state a mechanism even more specifically, I think that one idea that these things can convey that, that runs through those examples is that they, they can convey cultural norms, cultural values, or perhaps even a single individual's values really quite effectively. Yeah. And, and that's a powerful thing. But, I, but I, where I agree with you is that much of it is, I would call it a pleasant way to pass time. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we call that entertainment sometimes. That, that's somewhat demeaning, I think, to a great lecturer, to be exposed to a great thinker. But it's, as you, as you I think, you didn't use these exact words, but it was like, oh, yeah, I enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. you said, I think you said it was interesting. That, uh, <laughs> I, I think something we often say after a lecture. And it could mm -hmm. be that, that things were stimulated in our brain that we didn't you know, fully appreciate or think about. Mm -hmm. But as a way to convey, I, I, I would... I would have us try to focus on two things, mm. uh, information, mm -hmm. one, and then wisdom. Mm. Uh, obviously, wisdom is much harder to convey, and the richest type of learning that, that I feel I do is, wisdom's a grandiose word for it, but seeing connections between, between things I didn't see before, understanding that something I thought I uh, didn't realize applied to something else, uh, seeing an analogy uh, that, that might help me understand how, how to think about something, that's what I call, you know, sort of wisdom, deep learning, whatever phrase you want to call it, as mm -hmm. opposed to information. Mm -hmm. You know, the capital of California, Sacramento, or uh, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series last year. Mm -hmm. Those things, which are all accessible via Google in, in a very, very short, or DuckDuckGo in a very short period of time, I, I view those as different. And I don't go to a lecture to get those facts. I go to a lecture to get something closer to wisdom. Indeed, and it would be better, perhaps, if, if lecturers actually operated according to those principles. Now, one thing that we, we don't know, we kind of referring, say, learning scientists as a field, is the degree to which that kind of declarative knowledge, the information, as you call it, has to be deeply internalized before a person is susceptible to the wisdom. Uh, Lots of differing views on that. It's kind of difficult to, to study empirically, but it does seem that, uh, to some degree, uh, you kind of... You need to be familiar uh, with the core components of whatever topic of wisdom is attempted to be conveyed. Yeah, I, you know, my wife's a math teacher, as listeners know, and you know, I've been influenced by uh, the psychologist Daniel Willingham. And he's a big fan, as am I, of it's very hard to get wisdom without information. You, you need a base level of information. You need your math, your multiplication tables. You need some historical facts. Uh, you can't just theorize about history without understanding some really tedious factual things. At the same time, factual things alone are not knowledge. They're just facts. And I think the challenge that we face as our time gets more valuable, and I know you're aware of this, so like your opinion, you know, the, the temptation to reduce everything to a multiple choice exam mm. which tends to force us toward uh, spit back information, moves us away from wisdom is, I think, part of the challenge. It's certainly the uh, uh, elementary to high school uh, educational problem. It's a huge problem. Wittgenstein has this, this wonderful quote, a wheel that turns, although nothing turns along with it, is not part of the mechanism. And so if you've simply memorized a whole bunch of pieces of atomic uh, information, and yet um, they don't connect to each other, you're not able to combine them into anything, uh, you're not going to get that far. Learning sciences gives us... Um, a couple of structures for thinking about this that, that I find helpful. One of them is, is Bloom's taxonomy for thinking about tasks. And it begins with being able to recall things reasonably. And it, it moves up through being able to, say, apply things, take some procedural knowledge, perform a procedure, perhaps initially a very rote procedure, and then perhaps one with some flexibility later. 
Uh, finally, it moves through being able to evaluate and make critical arguments and ultimately to synthesize or create something anew. A different uh, set of structures I'll, I'll bring up and then uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully that will be helpful for the conversation is uh, transfer. Um, so initially when we learn things, we tend to apply them in a context where we're told exactly what to do. Uh, you need to perform this procedure on this data. And then maybe we remove one of the phrases from the sentence, perform some good procedure to achieve this outcome on this data. And then um, the challenge becomes just knowing what kind of problem is it. And, and finally, uh, what we call far transfer is a problem where you are, you the student or you the learner is forced to combine skills, things you're learning in a completely new to you environment. It definitionally cannot be uh, practiced via drills. Yeah, I probably mentioned this before. My favorite uh, course evaluation I ever received was, I got like, a one out of five from a student who said, Professor Roberts is a terrible professor. He expects us to apply the material to things we've never seen before. Of course, I warn people on day one, that's the essence of the class. Um, and I think that is great teaching when you can pull it off. It's not easily done. Not every student can do it. And I I'm ashamed at how the techniques that I used when I was in the classroom to convey that process. Um, my standard technique was, here's some really hard problems, think about them. And I was not able to give the feedback that they needed often to help them see why their incorrect answers were incorrect. And that's extremely important, obviously, is to to make progress. And we'll talk in a little bit about that general challenge of feedback and because I think it's fascinating one and it's increasingly challenging as people's uh, time gets more more valuable. But I, I, I want you to just talk a little bit about that open-ended versus um, multiple choice level of understanding. Uh, at one point in your essay, you talk about textbooks. You'd think textbooks would be written and designed to be for, in fact, to acquire knowledge, wisdom, et cetera. People write me sometimes, what econ textbook should I read? And the answer is none of them. They're not designed to be read. They are designed to complement a often extremely dry, multiple-choice-driven class, and they're explicitly not designed to convey information. And uh, I think that's, I don't know, I, I've, it, it bothers me. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to at least try to speak to that. Unfortunately, we don't we don't have all the answers there. But what we do understand of how what you call wisdom is acquired, or maybe the ability to mm, apply far transfer, or to flexibly and fluidly uh, and take skills and and, and um, use them in different contexts, that comes about through uh, a variety of different mechanisms. For instance. Um, explaining things that one has not seen before using those concepts or uh, making critical arguments using those concepts. Um, when I was at Khan Academy, my R&D group worked on this lengthy project to try to, instead of having multiple choice questions for everything, actually have open-ended activities for things. We were very focused on AP Humanities. For instance, in history, if you want to learn to make an argument for what historical causation is, that's a pretty complex thing. Historical causation includes things like it couldn't have been otherwise. Uh, it includes a sense of how important was this cause versus a different cause. And uh, so if I were to ask you, what was the most important cause of World War I? That's something that mm, if you were to give that as a multiple choice question, it wouldn't teach you very much in terms of wisdom for historical causation. I would say none. Mm. I mean, a typical you know, question like that, not on the AP exam, although I will say, as I've mentioned before, that I wouldn't have done very well on the AP history exam, even in areas that I understood the history, I think, fairly well. And I certainly wouldn't have done well on the AP economics exam recently as my kids struggled with them. And I said, these are terrible answers. Uh, but on the history exam, you know, if I said um, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand by Gavrilo Princip is the cause of World War One, and then the next three were related to, let's say um, – Walt Disney movies, well, clearly A is the right answer, but you've learned nothing. Now, there are subtler answers that you could give, but they wouldn't be right either, even though they might apply to World War I. And the challenge, as you point out, isn't teaching people what the right answer is. It's teaching them how to think and weigh evidence related to answers that are inherently not well-defined as correct or false. 
That's right. And, and indeed, that was actually the approach with this project. Um, before, you mentioned that most textbooks are designed not to be read on their own, but in fact to be used alongside a class. And if that class is a multiple-choice-oriented, very rote class, that's an unfortunate thing, and probably you're not going to walk away with a lot of wisdom. But if that class is a seminar uh, run by a competent facilitator, then you might get something pretty wonderful, where the contents of that class day-to-day -day, are discussions and debates. And one person raises an argument for uh, what indeed was the cause of World War One. Another person refines that and says, it's interesting that you point out this cause, because I think actually, if that cause had been removed, uh, nothing would have changed for this and that reason. And together, the class then co-creates an understanding uh, of what truly is important for causation. Um, there's modeling happening. The teacher is interjecting, uh, perhaps with um, a really good example of an argument at a given moment. Um, a teacher might ask a, a probing question that is meant to highlight um, uh, a way in which a student's conception is unproductive or uh, a way in which it might be enhanced. Uh, and indeed, the, the students will surprise each other. And, and so uh, at Khan Academy, we, we kind of tried to create that kind of thing online. And you wrote a paper about which I read, and it's, uh, it, it's a fantastically uh, provocative idea. The reason I was, found it fascinating is a lot of it is built around the idea of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, reaction. So describe what that, how that model works, at least in this case, and whether you think it has you know, potential to be more widely adopted. Certainly. Uh, so, so first I want to I kind of describe what it's not. So <clears throat> other people have tried to do open-ended learning activities online before, and, and often what that looks like is a peer-to-peer -peer interaction, but it's grading. So it's back to the right versus wrong. It's I write an essay, you grade my essay, and I grade your essay. We give each other scores. Maybe there's a rubric. The rubrics can help. It's not nothing. Um, but we were really focused not on assessing understanding, but developing understanding. Those two things are different. And we think that developing understanding looks a little bit more like that classroom where there's an exchange of ideas, an exchange of values. Now, we don't want kind of blind leading the blind type thing happening, so we don't... <clears throat> Actually, many teachers do just create a discussion forum and say, students, please discuss between classes. And sometimes that works. Uh, the evidence suggests that mostly it doesn't. So we want some kind of facilitation, some kind of orchestration. When the teacher's there, and if they're skilled, they can supply it. But uh, if they're not there, uh, or, <clears throat> or indeed, if you want a conversation happening between every pair of students, then they can't really supply it. So uh, the solution that we built kind of offers structured scaffolds wherein um, students are presented with uh, each other's arguments, and then they're, they're given almost like a little hand of cards for like things to try. Um, ooh, I'm going to not disagree with you or point out a limitation of your argument, but actually one of the things I'm allowed, a card I'm allowed to play on your argument is I'm going to add a piece of evidence, or I'm going to suggest um, a different uh, implication of the argument that you're making that actually makes it even more powerful. And students are not only doing that with each other's work, they're also doing it with model work that either the, the curriculum authors or the, the teacher have supplied so that they can interact as well, um, possibly without knowing, uh, with examples which are structured to highlight either particularly good manifestations of some facet of the skill or um, faulty ones. Now, is anything happening with that project? All oh, right, so uh, we finished that project kind of mid last year, and uh, it's it's kind of on the queue. But Khan Academy is is a pretty small nonprofit, and at the moment, my understanding is that they're focusing mostly on uh, middle school math, where it's mm, this particular set of skills is not quite the priority, which is is interesting because actually, in, in the new Common Core set of standards, um, there's this wonderful list of mathematical practices, ways of thinking like a mathematician that students are supposed to acquire that are usually de-emphasized relative to the, you should be able to multiply two-digit yeah. numbers together. And, and uh, my favorite one of eight is uh, to be able to construct viable mathematical arguments and to critique the reasoning of others. And I, uh, I wish luck to those constructing platforms using only multiple choice for that. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's kind of tough. So one of the most interesting pedagogical insights I was ever exposed to was I had the um, opportunity to spend uh, an hour with Orson Scott Card, hmm. a science fiction writer, and he teaches uh, creative writing. And at the time, I was teaching economists how to convey economic ideas in writing, which was, of course, I was teaching at George Mason. I think it was the only course in the country like it. I'm pretty, pretty confident. Um, and... I asked him for his advice. I was just starting to teach that class, and I didn't know quite how to do it. 
uh, or at least I thought I knew how to do it, but I thought he might know better, and he did. His suggestion was, and I didn't implement as well as I might have, but I did the best I could. His suggestion was to have um, the students give each other feedback, not literally grade, but critique the writing of the other students. And the reason that's so deep, well, one thing, it saves the teacher work, which, of course, <laughs> is always appealing at a certain level. But I think it's better than that. It's a, it's, a, it's a win-win because I think being a great writer requires being a great editor. And it's very hard to learn how to edit one's own work. And by editing the work of others, you learn how to edit your own work. And that, I think, is an incredibly powerful thing because of what you get instead – is a teacher who writes in the margin in red pencil awkward or confusing or bad example? And then the student gets it back and they never look – first of all, they rarely look at it than to say, boy, there's a lot of red marks here. I, I thought this was a better essay than, than my teacher thought. But I think the idea of learning how to fix an awkward sentence uh, – and, of course, an even better class would be you don't just write awkward. You write your version of the sentence that would improve it. Uh, because then it teaches you how to fix your own sentences. And I just think that is, um, that's an incredible insight. And I, and I just want to take it one step uh, further, which is uh, to pretend that econ talk is an educational activity. And one of the things I like to think of is that your dialogue with mine is echoing a dialogue that a listener would have with you or with me. And that process is w- one of the ways we learn is through the challenge and the back and forth um, and I, I think how little of that is in our current education system, how little of it is in our books, lectures, it's all, it's transmissionism all the way down. Now, for better, for worse, in high school classes, transmissionism is, I think, getting reduced because kids can't even sit still to pretend they're being transmitted information to. Uh, and so it is much more interactive, but it seems to me that interaction and grappling with the material is the only way we really learn it. You'll get no disagreement from me there. And uh, indeed, if, if you want to learn how to edit prose effectively, um, editing others' prose, editing your own prose, editing the best prose in the world, it's difficult to imagine better ways to do that. And uh, to the great credit of so many K-12 teachers, uh, particularly Recently, there's been a huge shift to interactive classrooms. Yes, because attention spans are, are shrinking and it's, it's just more interesting and fun. Um, but also because there's a growing recognition that even when one is learning math, uh, this kind of interaction is, is essential. People are not going to really understand uh, what say, a negative number is um, simply by learning how to perform a set of procedures related to it. They need to get, get a feel for it. Then the, the sort of term of art is sense-making. And th- that involves experimentation and play. Yeah, or, or worse, I think um, they're not going to learn what a negative number is by hearing a definition. And I, I think this idea of uh, grappling with problem solving, and, and by problem solving, it isn't just getting the right answer. In math, it often is, and I think that's extremely important. But in economics, it might be just to understand the factors that might be the ones you'd want to consider. And even there's no quote right answer uh, as to why, say, something is happening in the in the world right now. That to me is the economic way of thinking. Um, I read today that fair trade coffee isn't helping the workers; it's helping the farmers. And I'm thinking, no kidding. <laughs> That's what my problem set would have challenged the students to think about, right? Mm-hmm. If if your skill level is only worth X in the marketplace, the fact that your boss has more money doesn't mean they're necessarily going to share it with you. They pay what the market can bear. So those kind of insights, which, you know, as you point out, could be applied to a much wider array of things other than, say, fair trade coffee, that's the challenge of getting people to think that way and telling them that answer, which I just did for you listening out there. I don't think is nearly as valuable as arguing about it for half an hour with somebody about whether that's a good idea or not. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> maybe a, a way to summarize the, the whole approach is effortful engagement with ideas. You know, if that's going to be criticism, okay. If you're able to criticize effectively, now you may not kind of understand the skill in question well enough to do that effectively, and that's fine. There's different kinds of effortful engagement. For instance, listening to you and another economist having a debate on that topic may be a, a really great way to slightly effortfully engage. Now you can't stop there, but it may be one great step on a scaffold to being able to enter that argument uh, yourself and to debate with Russ. And and of course, uh, 
a lot of you out there listen to Econ Talk more than once uh, to each episode, which is fascinating. I want let's talk about that, not about Econ Talk per se, but about I want to go back to books. Hmm. Um, I read a book of Jewish theology called God, Man, and History. I found it utterly fascinating. After I put it down, I realized I couldn't tell you a single thing uh, six weeks later. And I went and asked, it's written by a I think Eliezer Berkowitz in, I want to say in the 19, early 1950s, 53 or so. And I went around to people I knew who were interested in theology, and I said, have you read Berkowitz? And they'd say, oh, sure. And I'd say, what can you tell me about him? And the answer was nothing, every time. Now, part of this was due to the nature of theology. It's hard to remember theology. You don't deal with it every day. Part of it's Berkowitz's style. Some of it's, a lot of it is the human brain, right? Uh, which is prone to, to forgetting. But I decided I was, I was not happy about this, so I decided to reread the book uh, with one of my children. Uh, I'd actually read it the first time with one of my children. I said reread it with a second child, uh, following along, underlining, writing in the margins, summarizing. And I've now read it, I think, four times. Uh, it's one of the few books I've read more than once. And I have a pretty good idea of what he's talking about. I could probably tell you right now. But... It's not was a lot of work. It was a huge amount of work. I mean, it's a challenging topic. Obviously, it's not. Actually, it's that's not really true. Every, every nonfiction, serious nonfiction book, is usually grappling with a complex set of ideas. So, what are your thoughts on that? On on multiple readings and on um, you talk about repetition. So, talk about what you're advocating there and in, in uh, online learning. Sure. <clears throat> so, one lovely thing is that cognitive scientists actually kind of know a bunch about what's necessary to form memories reliably. They're just not necessarily what we'll naturally do day to day. It's maybe a little hard to pull off. Memories are formed more reliably, say, if you're exposed to things multiple times, if they're anchored to powerful emotional experiences, if you have a variety of encodings for that memory, for instance, you know, both visual and auditory and perhaps relating to places. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the repetitions thing is a particularly easy and mechanistic uh, approach. So, um, you know, we're probably all familiar with the notion that if you study a thing a few times, maybe it sticks somewhat better. Uh, there's, there's sort of a, an, an efficient way to do that. If you study things a few times very, very far apart from each other, it's maybe unlikely to stick so effectively. It also, perhaps unintuitively for many college students especially, turns out not to be the case that, mm, let me phrase that in the positive. Uh, if you study things back to back, say, within a couple hours of each other, that's also not really going to work all that well. This is called the, the spacing effect. Uh, it turns out to be um, very helpful to space your study out. It's also possible to build systems which take advantage of that spacing effect. And this has been done for a long time, all the way back to shoeboxes for, for language learning, a system by Leitner. Um, but modern systems uh, are also being used. It's a little niche right now, often by, for instance, med students trying to prepare for the MCAT, and still in particular by language learners. Um, but uh, my colleague Michael Nielsen and I have been working on trying to integrate these systems more deeply into kind of any informational nonfiction text you could possibly imagine. And let's talk about that I, I, a little bit more. I, I'm, uh, I probably revealed on here that, you know, I don't, the way I think about it is you, you read about 50 books a year if you read a lot, and it's a book a week, and you might read for 50 years as an adult, maybe a little more, but it's it's about 3,000 books if you're lucky, and so you, you should pick them wisely, and if they're not productive, you should put them down. The idea of reading a book twice or three or four times, now I did it with a, with one of my children, which made it special, and that, that, that's a different, add something, it's like the thrill of the lecture in person, but... But I do think it's an interesting question about how often we should return to material and how we should and how that process should take place. So one of the things that's sort of shocking uh, about the spacing effect and the way that it's instantiated is that normally when we do things, say professionally as knowledge workers or as thinkers, we get diminishing returns. So if we're not taking any notes at all and we start taking notes, okay, some good stuff's going to happen. And then if we take more notes, we're somewhat more diligent, 
you know, we'll, we'll do a little better, but we're going to get diminishing returns. It's going to be some kind of a logarithmic curve. And the same is probably true for, say, you know, having a good discussion about that thing with others. If you have twice as many discussions, you're probably not going to get twice as many returns. And definitely the weird thing about the spacing effect um, is that it's the opposite of that. It's actually exponential. Um, so both prior theory and, and actually our present data uh, with a current prototype with um, almost 600,000 data points uh, is showing that uh, marginal time actually leads to exponential returns. So uh, in order to explain that, I have to get a little more concrete about what this project is. Just reminding listeners that exponential doesn't just mean like an enormous amount. It means more than linear. So go ahead. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So um, we've made this book on quantum computation, and um, we've chosen that topic in part because that's a topic that has a lot of notation, a lot of details. You need to know that, okay, you know, the bottom left-hand corner of this particular transformation matrix has this value in order to really make sense of the topic. So the first chapter takes about four hours to read, and it contains uh, 112 details that we track your your memory of. And um, we kind of follow up, and it's an interactive reading experience where as you're reading, uh, you get these little prompts, you know, are you remembering this? If you're not, we're going to kind of come back to you a little sooner. And then we come back the next day, and we kind of jog your memory on the stuff you're having trouble with, and so on, and you kind of start this practice. What's interesting about it is that the practice actually spaces out over time. So initially it'll be every day, then every three days, then maybe every week, and every month, and so on. When you say every day, or you mean the prompts to check your knowledge, the feedback. That's right. And, and that isn't uh, a cost which is equivalent to rereading the book. In fact, it's very quick. Uh, it's five or six seconds per question. I said there's about 112 of them. Um, and so... It costs you know, 10 to 15 minutes for, for readers to do each of those repetitions. And actually, just last week, I, I did the, the first kind of large analysis on the efficacy of this thing. And by the time people get to the fifth repetition, which costs you know, 60, 70, maybe 80 minutes, uh, kind of depends on where you are, uh, people are able to leave the book alone for a month, have a month pass where they're not engaging with it. They come back, and after a month, engage with those 112 questions and get them right. Uh, and that's really exciting and really interesting, but maybe what's even more exciting about it to me is that the marginal cost from the fourth to the fifth repetition is actually the same uh, as the marginal cost from the third to the fourth, as the marginal cost from the second to the third. Actually, it's slightly less. So uh, not only does it take less time to get from a week to two weeks and two weeks to a month, um, sorry, not only does it take the same amount of time uh, to get from a week to two weeks and two weeks to the month, it actually takes slightly less time for each of those steps. Now, I looked at that material, Andy, because I was intrigued by the pedagogical aspects of it. I have no interest in quantum computing, um, except as a thoughtful member of the 21st century uh, revolution of of knowledge. And the the questions in the beginning, at least, were things like, um, uh, you know, what is what is a. What's the space called that a qubit vector is in? And it's a state space. Okay. I forgot that term. Okay. But I got the vector. I got the the first thing I got right. The answer was two. And I looked at the second one. These are spitback questions, which are not unimportant. It's when you say 112 things, those are, that's jargon, I assume. It's maybe some connections of things. Um, But it's not the deeper understanding. Am I right? You're right. Um, Now, some of the questions are, somewhat more involved. They would ask things like, why is it difficult to store a qubit in this particular kind of matter, for instance? And so you kind of have to come up with a justification. Now, after you practice that a few times, it'll become a spitback thing. Now, a qubit, I just want to show off and say a qubit is like a bit in classical uh, computing, but it's in quantum computing, correct? That's great, yes. I learned something already. Wonderful. So, so uh, I guess first off, some some of those 112 details are somewhat less spitback, um, but I, I think the really important thing is what those 112 details let you think next. Uh, my colleague has this metaphor that I, I really enjoy, so I'll I'll share it here. Reading a challenging technical textbook is often a little bit like beginning by reading a book in English. And then let's assume that, say, you don't know Spanish. Um, Spanish words start creeping in. Uh, and um, by the time you finish the first chapter, like, actually kind of everything's in Spanish. And you turn to the second chapter, and you're like, whoa, like, I thought I picked up a book off the English section. What happened? Uh, and so uh, you're going to struggle with that second chapter. If you have those 112 details, which actually we have a second chapter, uh, you're going to have a lot easier time learning about the quantum search algorithm. Yeah. Um, that's... Uh 
let me take you to a harder a harder example. I'm, I'm going to give you two just for fun uh, because they're both former Econ Talk guests. Um, so I interviewed Yuval Harari a while back about his first book, which is Sapiens. My wife's reading it now. And let's pretend you ask me, what do you remember about Sapiens? Which my wife taps into a little bit because we're talking about it. And it turns out I remember three things. Three things. Not good. <laughs> it's a long book. Uh, I remember that he thinks that agriculture was a mistake and that I didn't agree with him. It didn't sit well with me. Uh, I remember that his view of money is based on trust, and I thought took that idea a little too far, even though there is a sense in which money is based on trust. As an economist, I found that a little simplistic. And third, he's anti-religion. Those are the, that's the three things I remember. That's weird. That's depressing. Now let me take a different book. Uh, Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb. Now, when that book came out, I read it. I didn't read it right when it came out. I read it somewhat after. I think after the Black Swan, a second book came out. And there were two views of that book, uh, which I've mentioned here before. One view was there is nothing original in this book. This guy is a fraud. He pretends he's figured out all this stuff. And I said, you know, I agree with that. I didn't learn anything that I didn't know in this book before. I knew that probability is difficult. I knew that risk is a hard thing to get wrap your mind around. I understood something about most of the ideas he talked about in the book. So in some sense, I learned nothing. On the other hand, I learned something incredibly deep. That book really grabbed me uh, by the guts and jerked me around. I mean, I, it forced me to confront some things that I, quote, knew, but didn't really internalize. And I would put that as a, another category of learning. These are things that, um, uh, I'm just going to give one more example, another former econ dog guest, A.J. Jacobs, who writes a book called Thanks a Thousand. It's about being grateful. Being grateful is a really good idea. I already knew that before I read the book. But the book made me a little more grateful, maybe. But even if I remember that that's the idea of the book, and even if after reading I thought, yeah, I should be more grateful to get me to be more grateful, that's a very high level. And so those are the sort of three, you know, those are all nonfiction books. Uh, they're all trying to convey some understanding that the author has of the world around us. And I have really, really different grasps of all of them. That's wonderful. And to some extent, it illustrates the variety of purposes for which books are intended. If we look at kind of classical rhetoric, only a small part of that is the information piece. Yeah. But if, for instance, in the, in the second book where you were yanked around, yeah. um, I, I'm not actually sure if it was maybe ethos or pathos at play there. It kind of could have been either, uh, depending on your, your predilections around Taleb. Uh, but that's something that's not going to come just from a flashcard. Exactly. And indeed, that's, that's part of why for quantum computing, uh, we didn't just make a box of flashcards. Uh, we're experimenting with this thing we call the mnemonic medium, uh, which is different from a bunch of flashcards, and it's also different from a book insofar as it's structured information embedded in a narrative. Because narrative can have ethos, and narrative can have pathos, and it can do those jobs that those wonderful books you described did. And perhaps also uh, do the job of leaving you with some detailed knowledge of what you read. Yeah, I'm a big fan of narrative, obviously. You know, written three economics novels. And I, and I do think that narrative storytelling is, is an important way that human beings' brains absorb information. Do you think about that much? Absolutely. Um, so so at, a, at a very simple level, I mentioned earlier that memory comes from emotional salience. But, geez, I mean, like, let's, let's leave that behind for a minute. Let's talk about meaning. Why are we reading any of this stuff anyway? What's the point of learning all this stuff anyway? Uh, for me, it's, it's about the moments that, that spark joy, the moments that uh, fill the, the light behind my eyes where I feel connected to the eternal. I don't know, standing here in front of the, the Hoover Tower, I felt a moment of that. And I asked you about peace. You know, that's just like a heady question for a Monday afternoon. I felt connected to peace. And I, I don't want to learn about quantum computing to learn about quantum computing. I want to learn about quantum computing because it could you know, bring us to the cosmos or something. But there is something beautiful about it also. I, I do think, um, I remember as a young a young man, I was probably 22, and I was reading a book by Robert Ardrey, who I really liked. Uh, I'd be amazed if anybody out there under the age of 50 has 
heard of him. Uh, and I'd be interested if anyone over the age of 50 has actually read one of his books. I read almost everything he wrote. He was a playwright, and he dabbled in anthropological uh, creativity. His most famous book was African Genesis, which his theme was that we were, we were as human beings, we came from the savannah, and we were, and we hurt each other. <laughs> we were violent animals, not just this sort of peace-loving uh, image that I think a lot of people have and had about, about human origins. But he wrote a bunch of books, uh, African Genesis, one, another book called The Social Contract, and I can't remember the other one, but the, in The Social Contract, I remember reading that book and putting it down and thinking, it made my hair stand on end. I was just so exhilarated to be in the presence of that experience and to have captured uh, something of what he was trying to convey. And it made me want to be a writer, actually, more than almost anything else. Um, I thought, you know, I, boy, if I could make somebody feel this, that would be deeply gratifying. I don't know if I ever have, but that was such a powerful moment of, of human connection with this man's brain. It wasn't like I walked out thinking, oh, I know now why people interact the way they do. It was, uh, wow, it's hard to figure stuff out, and that's a really interesting try. What a powerful thing. And, and ideally, we're all learning things for this reason. You know, I mean, we're not learning things, ideally, I hope, uh, you know, in order to check off a box for the Common Core State Standards, we're learning things uh, because we feel connected to the numinous. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about how to make things better. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things... I learned from a really uh, interesting part of my life when I was interested in time management was when you learn something, you should tell it over to someone. Okay, so that's a version of um, your idea of, of um, what's the name of it again? Uh, transmissionism. What? Transmissionism? No, or, no, no. The, the stretched out. Um, oh, 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 oh uh, right, right. The spaced repetition space curve. Repetition. Sure, sure. So sorry. That's one example of, of space repetition. And when I talk about I don't actually probably do this, but I talk about it with my kids when I try to give them advice on how to give a presentation. I say, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Now, I don't really lecture that way, uh, partly because not all my lectures are informational like that. Um, and I tend to be more of a stream of consciousness guy, which I'm not. It, it could be laziness. I don't know. It, it probably is laziness. But also it's part of it is that I'm not really trying to teach them something. I want them to be thinking in a particular kind of way. So you know, there's a big difference between – certain lectures have different purposes, obviously. But let's talk about how in designing a lecture or writing a book or having a podcast, how we might improve what people get from it other than just the passage of time. I love it. So in the essay – I talk about ways in which it's possible to intentionally design media so that their grains bend in a particular way. And, and when you conduct a class... And by grain, you mean like in wood. Yeah, like the grain like of wood. In, not like rice. That's right. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, and, and when you're conducting a class that is not so much informational, but rather um, which you want to use to help students think in a particular way, you are shaping the, the grain of the discussion in that class by asking questions in a certain way, by mm, using both your body language and your responses to tamp down certain lines of inquiry, to steer them in certain ways, to amplify others. You do that on your podcast all the time. You, you, you conduct the grain of this podcast in a certain way. Um, and, and books can do this as well. And by creating new media, we can do this. Uh, it's very, it's very interesting to think about constructing such environments in educational contexts. Uh, one example I'll share that I'm just totally in love with. Uh, when I talk about seminar-oriented classes, people often say, like, that's great for college, or um, that's really great for the humanities. Uh, it's not going to work for arithmetic. And uh, there's this wonderful professor, Constance Camille, who uh, wrote a book called Young Children Reinvent Arithmetic, wherein she documents uh, her experiments of having students do exactly that. She had a class of five-year-olds uh, in first grade, wherein she simply gave them uh, a large library of games that they could play, which she invented, uh, such that the grain of the games uh, kind of involved the students learning and, in fact, inventing for themselves arithmetic. And then they, you know, they took a standardized test at the end of the year, and they did fine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so. It's a very inspiring story for me. Yeah, and I, I think the, you know, there is a, 
a challenging mix between engagement and um, content acquisition. I think about it all the time in, in, in the more edgy stuff that I've done, uh, example being the Kane's Hike rap videos. So we tried to make them, I did with John Popola, we tried to make them entertaining, but we really tried hard to make them educational. And by having them rhyme, which of course Lin-Manuel Miranda also understood when he did Hamilton, it changes the ability of people to remember um, and and to have a, a shorthand form of communication. You know, I probably used the word jargon earlier in our conversation, and I probably put it in sort of sneer quotes, um, but jargon's incredibly valuable, right, as a way to, to do shortcuts in communication. And I think the a lot of these innovations in terms of teaching education and um, there's a huge challenge in figuring out how to, you know, games are great. Kids love games. If you can get them involved in games, they're going to get more engaged. The more time you spend on the gamey part, the less time they spend maybe learning. But maybe what they do learn is acquired more deeply. So I think there's just a lot of trade-offs there that, you know, we haven't really started to think about enough. We probably need to, to worry about a little bit. Absolutely. It's, it's really understudied. And one way that I think about this, I, I hope you'll forgive me for abusing the term, is uh, basically I, I think about efficient frontiers, uh, where for a given amount of enjoyableness, uh, how effective can we make the thing, uh, the, the kind of learning interaction? And, and, and likewise, if we want a given degree of efficacy, uh, how enjoyable can we make it? And um, films, for instance, uh, at a, at a reasonably low level of efficacy are, are very enjoyable. You can kind of sit back and, and watch a uh, watch an educational film. It doesn't take much effort, um, but uh, you probably won't get a ton out of it. It's very enjoyable. Um, likewise, but books are a little bit different. It's, it's hard to not engage all that effortfully uh, with a book. Um, but um, yeah, kind of the, the, the maximum level, it goes somewhat higher. If, um, if you're willing to and kind of have a not so enjoyable experience with a book. Maybe it becomes enjoyable because you're fascinated, but you know you kind of really delve deep. Um, then you might get something that's that's much 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 more effective than a short YouTube video can convey. I'd be interested enough. You can talk about this if you don't want to. Just say so. But you know, Khan Academy, I think, in the early days, made a conscious decision to have what I would call low production values, not fancy, very straightforward. Uh, not particularly entertaining. Uh, the only the, the main entertainment opportunity was to increase the speed <laughs> for some kids who were kind of already getting it maybe or could acquire it a little more quickly. One thing we haven't talked much about is how people differ a lot and what they get out of something. And, you know, what the three things you're going to get out of Sapiens aren't the same three things I'm going to get and maybe aren't the three things I want to get out of it, which is another uh, challenge. But I'm curious... Khan Academy's impact on mathematics, I would say, is by far its biggest impact. The more ambitious stuff that you have have worked on uh, is uncertain as to how it's going to turn out. But I think in math, it's been extraordinary. Is it measurable in any sense? And and, and the extraordinary part is that feedback. I think that that students don't just watch it and, and hear someone tell them how to do it. They're actually forced to interact with the material. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. <clears throat> that notion has been part of Khan Academy from the start. Uh, it kind of famously began with him uh, as Uncle Sal tutoring his, his nieces, and uh, he was doing it over Skype or some equivalent, you know, with a, with a tablet. And uh, after mm, doing the session with drawing on the screen, you know, give the, give the kids problems online with like a little website he wrote. Uh, this idea of instant feedback, it goes way, way, way back. Um, it's, it's very valuable for this kind of declarative knowledge and rote procedural knowledge. And it's been hugely helpful. Um, there actually are great efficacy studies on Khan Academy demonstrating um, pretty interesting benefits. It's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a savior. It's not a silver bullet at all. Um, it's done some good. It's, it's great. Um, I, I think that model is very valuable. Um, I think there's a lot of work to do to scale it to things like we discussed earlier, uh, like, you know, what was the primary cause of World War I, uh, getting there rather than, you know, how to multiply two-digit numbers is, uh, is going to be an extra thing. And one other challenge for, for that model that, you know, we engaged a lot with over the years and haven't yet cracked is uh, building the conceptual understanding. Like, you might understand how to multiply those two-digit numbers, but... Um, do you really know what's going on? I'll share this example that really struck fear into my heart from 
or research a couple of years ago, <clears throat> we were doing uh, some kind of explanation-oriented stuff where we wanted kids to generate explanations for how stuff worked and uh, not just, you know, use a procedure. And so we chose a bunch of kids who had gotten every single question right about a particular topic. Like, as far as the system was concerned, they knew everything there was to know about this topic. And then we asked them uh, this simple follow-up question, like, can you explain, you know, why this formula gives you the area of this kite? Uh, kite is like a geometric shape. And uh, we, we got this, like, horrifying set of answers. Uh, IDK, I don't know. Uh, math is weird. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, blank, blank, hmm, blank. Yeah, I mean, I, zero students of all, it was several dozen students who, who had answered every question correctly uh, could explain that. So the question there that I, <clears throat> that I think is so interesting, and you know, I talk about my, this with my wife all the time, which is getting all the answers right is great as long as you don't have to apply it to something new. And then you might be, if you, it's possible you have the underlying understanding that, that lets you apply it to the new stuff. But if you don't, um, you're cooked, and you won't be a good engineer. You're you're gonna you're gonna struggle. You know, some of it. I think you know part of the uh, advantages of learning math, which is just such an interesting question, just because so little of it actually applies to everyday life, and yet the, in terms of the amount of hours that are spent, just say on geometry, uh, you know, that it caused some people to say it's a waste of time. You know, I wonder about building groups in the brain. I think it's probably neural connections probably a good thing but i think there's also a there's also a a feeling of uh triumph and and uh achievement that comes from mastering math that that's special that's different than than quote mastering war, the cause of world war one it just it's just a very to me a very deep and interesting um area to think about but the the idea of how much underlying stuff you should understand. My wife teaches calculus and she teaches it very much as a let's understand it class. And th her students get to college, they get A's in their college calculus class and they find it unbearably boring because it's all cookbook. It's all, you know, um, punch out the, the right answer and, and not understanding it very well. It's just not important. I think what you're accessing now is, is maybe the, the greatest tragedy of all to me, uh, which is that... <clears throat> You know, why learn about math? Let, let's, let's put you know, kind of political disagreements about forced education aside. Math is so beautiful. You know, I, I, maybe I'm not going to force you to learn it, but oh my gosh, like, understanding something really deeply, and, and I'm not talking about arithmetic, but um, for instance, why does E show up in so many places? It's so beautiful. And that's because you're connecting to something fundamental and true. Yeah. It's, it, these are platonic objects. Uh, and I, I, okay, that, that's, a, that's a controversial idea. Um, and none of that, none of that is, is what is accessed in traditional K-12 education. You're, you're learning it because you have to, because I told you so, or perhaps uh, because it will help you get a job, or perhaps in a very enlightened environment, um, because it will help you think analytically and critically and abstractly, and those are skills which are useful in a variety of domains. One of my favorite moments in, as an undergrad was, was taking a... A graduate class in biostatistics, which was hopelessly difficult. It was a really interesting um, aside, which was after the midterm, the, the teacher called us all together and he said, you all failed. Uh, there were about 40 people in the class. And he was going to change his whole instructional strategy. He was deeply disturbed by this result. Um, uh, which is interesting because he could have said, well, just bad students this year. Uh, but he decided that he had not taught the material well and he changed his classroom interactions. He, he actually called on us instead of doing pure transmissionism. I don't think he knew any of our names, but we thought he did. He would call out someone's name and when someone looked up, he would look at them and we thought, wow, he memorized all our names. That is so cool uh, after the midterm. But I think he, he may have memorized some of the names, but he didn't learn... Uh, our faces for at least a while, but it was a very cool uh, emotional uh, emotional technique. But in that class, we learned to prove the central limit theorem in I think three different ways. And you could argue any one of them was a waste of time. Just here's the central limit theorem. Just believe it. It was one of the greatest intellectual experiences of my life. Uh, I didn't become a statistician. I've forgotten a lot of my statistics, 
We used, I think, characteristic functions, they're called, in that proof. Uh, I don't remember what they are. I think they have a capital Greek letter associated with them. I can draw it. I don't remember the name of it. But anyway, it was a beautiful thing. It just That's all I have to say. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you had that experience. Yeah. No, it's cool. Uh, I, you know, the knowledge that you're going to be hung in a fortnight concentrates a mind wonderfully, as I think uh, Samuel Johnson said. And I thought if I didn't get an A in this class, I wasn't going to get into grad school. So I was pretty motivated, um, but may have had something to do with it. Uh, anyway, let's go, let's go back to podcasts. Um, and let's think out loud for a few minutes in the time we have left of what might make econ talk more valuable to listeners. Now, I know some of you out there get together every week with your friends or your family and talk about it. Not very many of you, that there's more than two is deeply uh, wonderful to me. But would it be useful to have econ talk clubs? And maybe they shouldn't be every week for that episode. Maybe it should be from three weeks before. <laughs> uh, maybe they need to be staggered based on what you said earlier. But um, what might make, we don't have to just talk about econ talk. Obviously, there are a lot of podcasts out there and a lot of why people listen to them is just for entertainment. But a lot of it is to learn stuff. Um, what, what could we do that would be more useful? Just for fun today, I asked uh, the Adam Sifu uh, episode came out today on medical conservatism, and I asked people, what's one thing you learned Which um, from this episode, drawing on A.J. Jacobs' idea that you should have a one-thing document where you list one thing you, that you might want to remember. And you know, someone said, this is a great idea. You should do this for every episode. But of course, your one thing is not going to be the same as other people's, and a list of one things maybe is not so useful. But I don't know. So, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I'll give it a shot. Maybe we can brainstorm together. Well, here, here's one variant of of one thing you might find interesting. There's kind of a a classic textbook on instructional design called Understanding by Design, and it introduces this concept that I found very helpful called essential questions. And it, it argues that we should try to structure our curricula and structure our courses so as to really focus on accessing essential questions. What those are, are the, uh, the questions which are central to the discipline. They're the questions which are alive. They're the questions which are not resolved. They're the questions which you, the novice, and I, the expert, we are all engaging in. Love that. Uh, we can discuss it at all levels. We can apply it perhaps outside of the discipline. So for instance, uh, Essential questions around compound interest. Uh, for instance, why does it appear so many places? Um, uh, uh, let's just stop there. Uh, can apply in so many domains. So <clears throat> one one thing that might be fun for your listeners uh, <clears throat> is if you or your your guests introduce an essential question from their field or for from their work, which then the listeners can discuss. Uh, amongst themselves or think individually. So that's an interesting, um, I love that idea. So this, I, let me, let me try to rephrase it. Um, to see if I understand it, check if we're understanding here. Um, I love this idea that I ask a guest what in their area of expertise is, is, um, up for grabs. Right. Um, and of course the idea that listeners might know as much as they do, is is deeply troubling to most experts. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the other challenge, though, and this is where I'm, I'm going to ask you to try to come up with this, is you know what's the forum? So we have a we have a feature on the website called Extras, where we have we raise questions related to the episode. Most people don't go to them, almost by definition. Most people are listening in their car, commuting. Um, they don't go on the website actually at all. I, I think we've done a we've not done a very good job in the internet era of figuring out um, physical web-based spaces that are physically designed user interfaces that are effective. You know, a comment board is just not great. Uh, You know, it's a long stream of um, monologue, separate monologues. Occasionally there's back and forth. We've added that in, in our recent redesign. It's a little bit better. I like that. I think it's a plus, but a place to chat, um, Maybe it's physical, literally, in the sense that it's a club, or maybe it's it's a place in time uh, online that you know you can come and engage with other listeners at that point about a question that was raised toward the end of an episode. That's wonderful. Uh, I'll share a couple of thoughts. Um, 
first, one thing we learned uh, from designing the sort of open-ended activity tool at Khan Academy was that um, not not all discussions are equally productive or constructive. Uh, and you, you don't want someone to have to like wade through those to figure it out. And, and so uh, places like Reddit and Hacker News and so on have kind of figured out mechanisms which allow the most fruitful or generative discussions to rise to the top. Sometimes that can mean the most controversial or clickbaity, and there are ways of dealing with that. But for instance, if there were a thread, what is the relationship between one's emotional connection to knowledge and one's detailed understanding of that knowledge? That's a question which a learning scientist can engage with extremely deeply, but it's also a question which everyone can engage with. Everyone has experienced everything. Everyone has interesting things to say about that. So maybe if I, if I go to a thread that includes that question, um, at the top might be some of the most interesting responses, and I might feel inspired before I come up with my own answer to that question to engage with one of those responses, because it was very striking to me. And indeed, the, the um, momentum that I built in responding to that uh, might then inspire me to try to answer the question myself. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, um, a, let me ask you though about the, the forum for that. Um, be, is, the, is there a, do you know of any places to interface with material that is um, better than just, so, so there's the comment, that just goes down and down and down. Then there's the upvote, so you get maybe the more interesting ones. So that, but those are the same technology. It's slightly improved. <clears throat> Is there a chance to do something else? Something? Um, does it maybe it's moderated? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, sure. Just a couple other models that that come to mind. Um, so one of them is uh, moderated-ish, and uh, it's it's used by a lot of bloggers. So. Many bloggers who write series of essays on their blog will um, write something. It'll include some provocations that the comment section will uh, have a lot of discussions going on. The, the person who wrote the thing might engage and, and facilitate those discussions slightly. But the more important thing that they'll do is to kind of pull some of those comments, the important ones, up into the, the body itself or to address them in the next essay. So the equivalent here might be... Um, either to have volunteers for the community um, be highlighting particularly interesting uh, questions or discussions, or for you on a subsequent episode to kind of react to uh, the ideas from the community that you found most interesting. Yeah, I, I love that. It's not, and, it, and I've come close to it. I mean, the thing that often will come to me, happen to me is that I'll finish an episode and a few days will go by and then I'll think, why didn't I ask blank or... You know, when I said that, that didn't really capture the way I think about it. I, it's such an incomplete answer. I need to expand on it. Obviously, it adds an immense amount of work, potentially. It's hard to, you know, get each episode out just already, but to add to that might be too demanding. But the idea of using um, postmortems as a way to enhance, certainly my understanding, is a good thing. But I love this idea of Hearing from, I'll give you another example, and maybe this will be a way we can close. When I used to teach uh, in the classroom, uh, I, there was a point in my life where I was teaching in a business school, and I got somebody from, uh, from some business faculty member told me that feedback was a good thing, and I'd never asked for feedback. I know I'm a great teacher. Come on. I don't need any feedback, which is, you know, arrogant. I was young. Um, but based on that encouragement, I would give a one-page feedback form every lecture. Every lecture, um, and in that lec that one page was this, was the following: How was this lecture on a scale of one to five? I think it probably asked how much did you get out of this lecture on a scale of one to five. What was the most interesting thing or most valuable thing you learned, and what was the most confusing? And what was fascinating about that is that I didn't anticipate what those were often um both of them what i thought was the most important or interesting or valuable thing was not what they thought and what i thought was the most confusing thing was not what they thought and that was a real you know that was a wake-up call that's um so i think it would I, I, it would be nice to do something like that for econ talk i'm not sure again how to visually or physically create that but you know what was the most interesting that 
people thing that people got out of our conversation, what left them puzzled, confused, or offended, which is another thing I would sometimes ask. Um, and then using, not just, I mean, just categorize, cataloging that would be interesting, but using it as a way for follow-up and enhancing learning, I think, would be fantastic. That way there are stakes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you'll know that, hey, perhaps, you know, Andy or Russ is going to reply to this. Right. It'll mean something. And, and I think you're actually also tapping into something that's just really central to this place where we are right now here in Silicon Valley, being surprised by our users here, our listeners. Yeah. They'll teach us things we don't expect. And so, you know, we have to go there with, a, with an open mind and they'll surprise us. You know, one of, the, one of the things that is strange about being the host of this program is that, you know, I started it as a way to teach economics and to teach what I thought were the virtues of liberty. Um, I don't do either of those in, an, in a formal, I don't lecture on that on this program anymore. I probably did in the early days. If you go back to 2006, you'll hear my occasional soapbox on, on one or both of those things. And, um, you know, it turns out what many people get from this is a style of argumentation which is uh, unbelievably um, uh, satisfying to me. And, and any of you out there who, who have benefited from that, it's, I'm just, I'm flattered and it, it is, it moves me deeply because partly because I, you know, I, I do the best I can. I don't know if I'm particularly good at it, but just that it wasn't expected. It is a surprise, not what this was about in the beginning. And I think, um, boy, that's fun. Earnest engagement with ideas without necessarily having to agree. Yeah. It is a beautiful thing. Yeah. My guest today has been Andy Matushik. Andy, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you so much. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.